creatures, a mix of human features and animal features, cherubim and seraphim, with the faces, uh, face of a man and the face of an eagle and flying with six wings, covered with eyes. We're going to read about that again this morning. And so uh, he's not making this stuff up. What he's doing is being inspired by what the Bible says, that there's another dimension, and that dimension where God is, heaven, where his throne is, there are just fantastic things to see and to hear. And we're going to get a glimpse of that as John goes through an open door this morning into heaven. He's going to describe some of that awesomeness, sights and sounds uh, from the land of heaven in the throne room of God. Let's refresh our memories. We, we only got through verse 1 last week, and so we're going to uh, finish the entire chapter this week. And so for context, we'll start with verse 1. Chapter 4, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you, must, with, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. Amen. Now that John's been relocated in the spirit or bodily form to heaven, he's saying he's gone through an open door. Chapters 4 and 5 in front of us now prepare us for what's to come. We're in the throne room. Command central, heaven. In 25 verses, Jesus will pull the trigger, the first trigger, or open the first seal. And for all intents and purposes, the great tribulation will begin, such as the earth has never seen nor will ever see. 
that will begin in 25 verses. Chapters 4 and chapters 5 is a preparation time to remind us who's in control, to remind us of God's awesome majesty, his holiness, his character, his righteousness, and his grace. And we're going to be reminded before we see the things that are going to come at the seven last years of planet Earth, as prophecy unfolds, we will be reminded that it's really all about the Lord. He alone is worthy to be praised. So, by way of context, we did spend the entire message last week on one verse, the significant verse of opening line there, the profound implication for understanding where the church fits, where do believers fit in chapters uh, 6 through 19, the last seven terrible cataclysmic judgment uh, days upon the earth, which the earth never recovers from, and the end of human history, as we know it, takes place. It's about to be revealed. But where is the church? Well, we talked about that, that verse 1, along with other scriptures in the New Testament and Old, seem to indicate that the church will not be here after this. Here's a paraphrase. Of verse 1, after this, writing to the seven churches, I look up, I see this open door to heaven, that same voice I heard from the beginning like a trumpet commanded me, come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things, after the days of the church are over. And so we talked about that in language very similar to describe the church being caught up to heaven. John is now caught up into heaven to be shown the rest of the contents of the prophecy, the apocalypsis in Greek, which means the unveiling about how the world comes to an end through the judgment of sin upon this earth by God, and then the establishing of a new kingdom uh, where Christ will reign and rule. And And I like to remind us that In the first three chapters of Revelation, the word church is used 17 times. From this verse forward, as we talk about the Great Tribulation, it never occurs again. 17 times in three chapters, and then never to the end. And I made the point, and I think before I get tempted to make the point again, that there's a reason that the church is not mentioned during the last seven years on earth because she is with the Lord in the throne room of heaven. Now, that view is called the pre-tribulation view, and we made a case for that last week. So we're going to go forward now. Uh, Here, John is in heaven. He's As I have said, before the action starts and the judgments begin to fall, uh, here we have the two chapters we're looking at now, chapters 4 and chapter 5, describe really what's going on in Command Central. So what appears to be the throne room of God Almighty. So let's start with verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had this appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So if you're taking notes, the first point is an occupied throne. Now, I don't want to get on a soapbox about something, 
Uh, but I do as a pastor wish to uh, make this point about people who are caught up to heaven and then come back to tell us what it's like there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as I've mentioned before, Paul the Apostle was harpazo, the word we get rapture from, was caught up to heaven. And he said two things about the experience. One, he says, I can't put it into words. It's inexpressible. There's no words to say what I saw and heard. And the second thing he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 4, is, is it's unlawful to tell you. It's unlawful. The word means not permitted by God or forbidden. Now, I just make a conclusion about that. If you want to get a glimpse to heaven, you have got Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Apostle John. You've got the entire book of Revelation. This is what we base any understanding about what heaven looks like or the throne room of God. Amen? And by the way, in heaven, there's no cell phones. <laughs> Praise God. Amen? Hallelujah. <laughs> All right, moving on. Now, an occupied throat. Let's think with me here. Of all the endless, various, and magnificent sights one could see in heaven, it's really significant that John's eyes fixate first upon a throne, an occupied throne. Uh, the throne is mentioned 14 times in this chapter, and it is mentioned 46 times in this book, and, and really is not only theme to this chapter, but theme to the book, God's throne. There is a God in heaven, and his will will prevail. An occupied throne. Now, if there's a throne, there's a ruler, and if there's a ruler, there's authority, and if there's authority, there will be accountability. Now, if you talk to a spiritually minded person today who believes in the afterlife and in some version of God, ask them to describe heaven and you will not hear the word throne. You will not hear that. You will hear love and spirit and uh, people's faces, but you will never hear a throne because throne has absolute authority a throne is where we bow and surrender to another's rule. So you will not hear that. But John says, hey, first thing I, I just the first thing I saw was a throne. And that is given for a reason. The religion of today is called humanism, where man is front and center. Everyone decides what's right for themselves. And the only throne the humanist or the atheist acknowledge is the one they're seated upon. Now, humans are not fond of the idea of being ruled by God, and so uh, there's no contacting the throne allowed in public schools from 1963. Oh, no, you will not talk to that throne room. And no contacting the throne room uh, for other things, for prayers at graduation, no Ten Commandments displayed, no manger scenes, no Christmas songs, no crosses, no pledge of allegiance under God, no reference to a ruler of any kind. 
But John gets to go to heaven, and what's the first thing out of his mouth? A throne, and it's occupied. Despite what man thinks, despite the appearances here on earth, there is a throne in heaven. The rebellious man relentlessly tries to eradicate every vestige of God's authority. The fact remains, John sees a throne, and every single person who ever existed will see one as well. It's a fact of life. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23 says this, I have sworn, the Lord speaking, I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto everyone first to die and then to be judged. All paths do lead to God's throne. It's very true. It's just we determine in this life how that little throne room scene will go, good or bad. Amen? So here we have uh, the throne room. Perhaps it's the judgment seat of Christ. We call it that because Paul calls it that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the first order of business, let's say we keep the pre-trib stance, is the church is in heaven before the judgment seat of Christ, where Christians will be evaluated for how they stewarded their life before God. The disconcerting part of the verse is, of course, uh, that he will receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, that that our judgment doesn't end in condemnation, but all the bad things could mean loss of reward, but we ourselves will be saved. But this is what Peter meant when he said that there is a time for judgment, and that judgment begins with the family of God. And if it begins with us, Peter says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it's in keeping with this whole stance of the church is before the Lord, and we are evaluated. And... uh, and, and Peter's point is, is that it starts with the church and then judgment will fall upon the earth. And Peter's point is, if it's such a sobering thought that even Christians do not escape evaluation in the judgment of God, we do not escape that. He says, what will be the outcome of those who don't have the blood of Christ, who don't obey the gospel of Christ? And, and the answer is coming. The answer is coming. First, the judgment, the household and family of God, as you're seeing in your text, before the throne of God. Now, so the occupied throne means accountability for us and God's sovereignty uh, because the judgments to come come from God, the destiny of the earth, God's control, uh, and all its inhabitants are under his reign. That's what the picture of the throne really is saying. So in spite of how it may appear in your life, 
however topsy and turvy your circumstances are this morning, there's an occupied throne in heaven. He's calling the shots. He's working on your behalf. The throne in heaven is occupied by somebody who really, really likes you. And he said (laughs) that I will use all the things in your life, good and bad, for your good because you love me. There's a throne in heaven, and John tells us about it. Then he says someone's sitting on that throne, and and it's really too glorious to describe like unapproachable light. And so he describes the one on the throne by using two gemstones, and they're very significant gemstones, as we'll find out. I need to correct myself from last week when I referenced this person to be Jesus Christ. It is most certainly God the Father, because in chapter 5, Jesus is seen approaching this very throne. And so uh, this is God the Father. And it makes sense because uh, we have a scripture that says, God, the only ruler who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. And so we think this is God the Father. And he's described in two gemstones by two gemstones. Jasper, which is a clear crystal, and we see in chapter 21, it's like a diamond. And then there's the brilliant ruby red, carnelian or sardius. It's the same kind of stone. Now, for you to know what is going on here, everything about the high priest and the tabernacle in the Old Testament was to reflect the throne room in heaven. So you know in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, everything about that high priest, the colors of his robe, the incense and the oil and the tabernacle and the curtains and the furnishings, everything is a shadow or a copy of the throne room in heaven. So whatever we're finding here has significance and we can get some understanding by looking at the Old Testament. And so interesting that the high priest had gemstones. And so as soon as we hear those two words about the ruby red carnelian and the jasper, John MacArthur and many, many others see this as going back to Exodus 28, verses 17 through 21, where it shows that the high priest had Israel represented on his breastplate by 12 gemstones. The first one and the 12th one are jasper and carnelian. So commentators say, first and last means the whole tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel is front and center. And then connecting that to the next breath is a rainbow. Now the rainbow says, I keep my promise. So commentators say, by the use of those two gemstones, we're, we're, ca- we're caused to think of Israel And right away, the rainbow, the covenant. So if verse 1 says the, the church, God's people, the church, are safe with him, verse 2 and 3, the very next thought is, I will be true to Israel. I will keep the church from the tribulation, and I will keep Israel through the tribulation. Now, that's very important. You know why? Because the whole tribulation, the last seven years on this planet, is all about Israel. 
Now, it, it, it's unbelievable because the size of Israel, you wouldn't think the whole world kind of stands or falls because of Israel, but let me show you a picture of the size of Israel. You see that little sliver? There's the Arab world, and that's Israel. Let me help you with the United States and Israel size comparison. That's Israel. And the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, I will make Jerusalem and Judea a cup of trembling for the whole world. You see, it's all the great tribulations all going to come down about Israel. The Antichrist, thank you for that. The Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. He breaks a treaty with Israel. He sets himself up in a temple in Israel. He sets out to destroy Israel. He leads the armies of the world to surround Israel in the valley of Megiddo, where Armageddon takes place, called the War of the Great Day of God in Israel. It's all about one little piece of land that is as big as New Jersey. Now, imagine this week, Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, this week says, if you don't do something, if you do not do something, world, the whole world is going to blow up. This week, he's saying, Israel is threatened. If you don't do something, United Nations, this happened four days ago, a bomb is going to go off and it'll be World War III. The Great Tribulation. He's saying it from Israel. Now, what if everyone loved Israel and there was no threat and nothing made sense when we looked at this? But it makes complete sense. These, these are 3,000-year-old prophecies. 3,000 years. And this week, the leader of this little tiny nation is saying, help us or the world's going to explode. Thank you for that picture. But it's incredible. Now listen. So God says, gemstone number one, gemstone number 12, my people, rainbow, they're coming through. And then Paul the Apostle says, listen, when the full number of Gentiles, that means non-Jews, when the full number of Christians has been met, then God turns his attention toward Israel. And I quote Romans chapter 11, verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Christians or non-Jews has come in. And then at that time, all Israel shall be saved. God keeps her through the tribulation. At Armageddon, there's a massive looking up and turning to Jesus Christ. And Israel, as a Christian nation, is delivered and saved by our Lord Jesus Christ through the tribulation because God has a covenant with her, the rainbow. Now, that's just beautiful. Uh, verses 4 through 6. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. 
They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, a reference to the Holy Spirit we've talked about. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So number one was an occupied throne. Number two would be a threatening storm. So amidst the throne of God are other thrones. And we shouldn't be surprised because the Lord talks a lot about his people in the next life reigning upon thrones. And so as the rumblings begin to be heard, first of all, who are these elders? Well, I don't know for sure because nobody knows for sure. Uh, It would have been nice if John would have said to an angel or somebody standing by, even the Lord himself, you know, who are those elders? That would have been so nice, but but he didn't. So here's the best and most offered uh, explanation. Uh, They are the people of God in heaven, represented, enthroned, and rewarded. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and there were 12 apostles of the church, 12 plus 12, 24, representing God's people. Now, their description really matches what Jesus promises all faithful Christians. And so these elders, instead of thinking of them as creatures or uh, angels, they really describe what is described for Christians, uh, thrones. God's people are called kings and priests who will reign and serve with Christ. That's chapter 1 and verse 6. In Revelation chapter 3 and 21, the Lord says to his church, You're overcomers, and I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 2 and 3, Paul the Apostle saying, uh, You do realize that we, we, Christians, will judge the world. And then he says, And didn't you consider that we will judge angels? And so that they're seated on thrones, it looks consistent with how we are described in the scriptures about thrones in the future. He says that these elders were clothed in white. Well, God's people, really, this means God's people completely sanctified, morally perfect, uh, spiritually clean. Uh, The Lord said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, they, speaking of Christians, in the life to come, they will walk with me in white. There we have it. We have thrones, check, We have walking in white, check. And then they have crowns of gold. There are different words for crowns in the Greek. This is Stephanos, where we get the word Stephen. And it's for achievement. And so um, these crowns are consistent with what Christians are promised for faithful service. Uh, Paul the Apostle, ending his life, he says to Timothy, Now there is in store for me the crown, the Stephanos. Of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Here's the good part. And not just to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you long for his appearing? Do you have Christ in your heart and life? The Holy Spirit transforming you? You're an overcomer. You're born of God. And he says you will receive reward. You will have a crown. Other places, 1 Corinthians 9.25 James chapter 1 and verse 12, and 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. For all you note takers, other places where it says, faithful Christians are rewarded with Stephanos, 
crowns. Now, uh, those are the elders. Now there's a rumbling. A storm is coming. Now, I grew up in the East Coast and uh, really wonderful in the summer evenings. Not a cloud in the sky. Suddenly, you hear this rumble out of nowhere and a flash in the sky and you know, oh man, a storm is coming. And now, from the throne, rumblings of thunder and, and, and blasts of lightning, the storm is brewing, and this perfect storm is going to be like none other. From the throne, verse 5, flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In 19 verses from now, Jesus himself will open seal number 1, releasing the first of four horsemen, the rider of the first horse, white, the Antichrist, Seal number two, the red horse, world war. Seal number three, the black horse, famine. Seal number four, death, the ashen horse. A quarter of the earth's population will perish. And that's only with 13 chapters left to go on top of that. So yeah, from the throne, rumbling. And lightning. But something very important, two things are placed before the throne for your attention so that we can understand something about this coming storm. And number one, you see the representative of the Holy Spirit and flame of fire. So number one, this storm that's coming, the Great Tribulation, it's a necessary storm. It's a just storm. It's the fire of cleansing of justice, where the bad guys receive their due penalty of their error. It's to purify and to administer justice. The seven spirits of God have been named the Holy Spirit. He's often pictured with fire, a fire that cleanses and purifies and removes impurities. This is a righteous judgment against rebellion and evil and sin and wrongdoing. So the storm is just. Even Jesus has said this. Listen, he will baptize you, John the Baptist speaking, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is the fire of God in righteousness and holiness saying, I have to judge evil and sin. Now, Warren Wiersbe on this verse, he says, Our world just wants to concentrate on the rainbow of promise and forget the rumblings of judgment around the throne. But you can't have one without the other. We see God's righteousness and mercy, his holiness and grace at the cross. Love for the world, but wrath against sin. Now, let's not forget that in this case, awesome, the rainbow usually comes after the storm. But in this case, where is it? The rainbow is pictured before the great tribulation. Promise and covenant. And the thing I like about the rainbow that the Lord told Noah, he said, listen, I put this bow in the sky to remind you, to remind myself, listen, there's a covenant with you. And, and did you ever stop to think, he's talking about a bow, a weapon, right? Because it looks like a bow. Right? But where, where is the bow pointed? 
it's pointed that way. So if you were to fire an arrow from the bow, you would hit where? You would hit heaven. So he says, I've made a covenant with you all, just so you know, the arrow pierced my son's heart. There's mercy and covenant and something that you can really be, be sure of and stand on. Because why? He, he, it says, the lamb opened seal number one. Ah, the lamb who was slaughtered for the sins of the world. The lamb, meek and mild, is going to unleash the terror. The lamb, not the lion. The lamb who laid down his life for those people. And they have made a choice. He said, come to me under my covenant of love. I took the rap for you, paid for all your sins. And I've spent 6,000 years dealing with everybody in love and patience and grace. And the gospel has gone to all the earth. And then the end comes. The gospel has gone to all the earth. You have an opportunity. This isn't an, a vindictive God saying, now I'm going to destroy the place in seven years. He's saying, first I destroyed myself for you and made a way of escape. And now I must deal with sin. You have the opportunity, one or the other. But God is just not some mean meanie in the sky ready to just unleash his lightning bolts first the bow went through his own heart now this is um, a cleansing fire as I said but also the second thing you want to see before the throne is that sea of glass what is that all about well water perhaps water of cleansing a symbol but the sea of glass it, you know we just got back from a pastor's conference at Hume Lake and sometimes I go down to the lake in the morning to have a quiet time. There's a little mist and the sun is rising. Nobody around. And that water is still as glass, crystal glass. So what is the point here? The point is that this is a just cause, this fire that's cleansing. And by the way, the whole world is going to be turned upside down. The sun, moon, and stars are going to come undone in this next thing that's coming from the rumbling. But just so you know, near the throne, not a ripple, not a disturbance in your peace, safety and peace in Christ. I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. The world may be turning upside down, but in front of God's throne and for those who are before the throne and in him, not a ripple, clear, it's glass, smooth. Let's finish up. I'll take the whole chunk and make a few comments, and then it's time for hamburgers. In the center, around the throne, it's Narnia time. Four living creatures. They were covered with eyes, front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second an ox, the third a face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him 
who lives forever and ever. They live. They lay their crowns before. They lay. They, huh, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, "You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power." For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So last point is this worship scene. So an occupied throne, a coming storm, and a worship scene. Now the elders join these creatures, and they're seen worshiping, and maybe we're involved in this, and some cool insights as we wrap up. Now, John's occupied with these four living beings. The King James has beasts, a very bad translation. And creatures isn't very much better. The word zoon in the Greek just means living beings. They were living beings. Now, they're similar to what is called the cherubim and the seraphim, taken from Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1, but they're a mix. And so you can't just say, oh, they're seraphs or they're cherubims. They're kind of... A mix. Well, let's take a closer look at this, these winged beings. And now, first of all, they're covered with eyes all over the place. Now, I don't find this like a sci-fi movie at all. I think it's very comforting. Here's what, it's an easy one. Anywhere near the throne of God is total sight, total knowledge. Heaven knows the whole story. There's not going to be, you know, a bailiff in heaven. Hey, get the lie detector test here. (laughs) There's none of that. The whole point is is that I love what Psalm 94 and verse 9 says. Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Come on. The one who invented the eyeball, he, he sees everything. He sees Physically and spiritually, he knows what we're thinking and he knows the thoughts and the secrets of our hearts. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's what the eyes are all about. Now, the first explanation for these four creatures is that they are angelic beings which express through their image and appearance the attributes of God, especially Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. So hold on, we're almost done. Let's talk about these four animal features here in verse 7. Number one, lion. Well, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the king. The lion is the king of the beasts. And Matthew talks about Jesus being the lion. Secondly, the ox. Well, Jesus came as a servant in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom. Oxes bear burdens. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the sin bearer for mankind. He shouldered the burdens of sin. He became your sin so that when you stand before God, you're free because your sin got transferred to his shoulders. He's the ox, the beast of burden. Number three is a face of a man. Luke's gospel presents Jesus as the son of man and emphasizes his humanity and how his heart was touched by our weaknesses and our infirmities. 
And number four, the eagle, John's gospel, talks about Jesus as the great I am. He lists seven I am statements that only God could make. And really, John is on a mission to prove that this son of man is also son of God. And so something about these beings is reflecting the glory of what Hebrews says is the uh, radiance of God's glory through Jesus Christ. The king, the servant sin bearer, the son of man, the son of God. And he's worshipped as such, holy, holy, holy. Separate are you, there's no one like you, who was and is and is to come. The, The definition of Yahweh is who was and is and is to come. In verse 9, on some occasion, these creatures uh, give special thanks and glory to God, and the elders, or all of heaven, or we, join in with them. And here you have the first hymn of the four, here in chapter 5, and several throughout the book of Revelation. The theme of this hymn before us is God as creator. It's sung to the Father on the throne. Now, next chapter, we're going to sing to God the Son as God the Redeemer. But a couple things to observe about this first worship chorus we find in heaven. Number one, they fall to their knees. Now, that's just saying, you know, Christianity 1A, you know, you're God, I'm not. Uh, You created the heavens by just speaking. I think I'm going to get into a better position where I belong on my knees. It just shows uh, subservience, dependence, and humility. You know, as a Jew, I can say this, that Jews don't bow the knee. Um, It's a rabbinic thing. They don't kneel. And we say, we're Jews, we don't kneel. After the tribulation, there's going to be some kneeling. And, and, and perhaps that's part of the whole story there. Now, they give back their crowns. Why? Well, let me read you um, a portion of Matthew. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him, and then they twisted together a Stephanos, a crown of thorns, and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Well, the crowns come off and they're cast at God's throne because somebody else already paid the way for us to have any blessings whatsoever. We wouldn't be in the place without the first person who wore the first Stephanos, the crown that really mattered, was the crown of thorns stuck into the head of the one who created that plant in the first place. And why did he take that? He took that for me and for you. So instead of us getting a crown of thorns and being stripped and humiliated and shamed, he was stripped and humiliated and shamed. He bore the brunt of our sin and took the Stephanos and was crowned. And that was a glorious thing. So our Stephanos comes off as we say thank you. And he gives it back. 
He rewards us back. He gives it back and says, thank you for acknowledging that. You put your crowns back on your head. You're my children and you reign and rule with me. In the worship chorus, I love it. It just says, you know, we get it gone. It's all about you. Nothing, including us, exists without you. You alone are worthy of praise. That's really what it says. It's a song that says, God, you, you're everything. If there's a God, I mean, he's the only thing that matters, correct? And so this song just says, hey, we praise you. All glory, power, and strength goes to you because you're the source. We wouldn't exist. The planet wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Now, in closing, you know, the Lord often uh, describes and compares Getting to heaven like an invitation to a party. So this is my last closing illustration. It's an important one. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this royal celebration. And we send out invitations. Some people come and some people don't. And so I'm trying to think of this in terms of singing this hymn and being inside the throne room of God. Now, in those comparisons, Jesus says, you know, a time comes when the host gets up and shuts the door and locks it, and it's done. The invitation was given, time was granted, people came in, time to start the party, done. Shut the door, lock it. And in Jesus' parables, there's always somebody, hey, change my mind. Want to come into the party after all? Now, I always picture this, and I always think, man, listen, uh, the Lord answers, says, who are you? And he says, yeah, come on, you were in the streets. Uh, I'm a neighbor down the street. I want to come in. I changed my mind. He says, I, I, I don't know you. Now, I, I always think, dude, if you only knew what was going on in here, you would not want to come in from your point of view. You know what we're singing about? We're singing all glory and honor and power to God, right? What was your song? Can you sing that song? Did you notice there's no practice before? Everyone just busts out this hymn, and apparently everybody just knows it, you know? (laughs) We didn't go, the ushers going, you know, hey, come on back here. We're going to learn a quick chorus, you know? No, we just know it. Why? Because we lived it. You can't get into heaven without understanding it's all about God. It's not about me. He created everything. That's Christianity 1A. So uh, to the, let me in, let me in. <laughs> hey, there's sounds of singing and dancing. Oh, you don't know the song. You don't even like the song. You don't want to come in here. You just don't want to get in trouble out there. <laughs> That's the only reason. Because Here, sing the song, sing the song. Uh, For I have created all things. No, no, that's not how it goes. All glory and honor and blessing to me, because by my hands I have done all these things. And you're like, dude, no, seriously. No, you won't be happy in here. Because you know what? There's, There's kneeling in here. We kneel. We say, oh, God, we are nothing. We don't deserve this. It's not about us. We're not going to brag about us. You sure you want to come in here? I mean, it's church and singing and, and songs. And, and some creatures, they go on and on and on, and they never stop. They're just raising God forever. You sure you want the part of this? And they're like, uh, maybe not. All they want to do. Listen, folks, when you die, everybody's a believer. The second your soul leaves your body, guess what? 
welcome to faith. Because faith is no longer needed because you get it. And then everybody has a sudden change of heart. But when you die, you are frozen in state of who you were at the time that you took your last breath. Done. No second chances. The door was open. The door was open. The Holy Spirit was over you and giving you chances and bringing you some crazy church with some bald bastard up there (laughs) telling you, raving like a madman. You had the opportunity. (laughs) Amen. Who said that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Do you know the song? (laughs) The song is... You got it right there? Because we're going to all say it together. It's set apart for you. It starts, you're worthy, right? You are worthy. Ready? Let's say it together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Well, if you could sing that song and you can agree with that, then that's a passcode to get you eternal life. As it comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making it so easy. You've given us the Holy Spirit who softens our hearts. You've given us creation that reveals your eternal qualities. You've given us the church. You've given us Christian testimony. You've given us the word of God. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us a conscience. Because you love us. And thank you, God, for being holy. We want to live in a world uncorrupted by evil and sin and wrongdoers away. We we want that kind of world. and, And you are... You're bringing that world to pass and offering us a chance to duck and cover. (laughs) Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.